Hello, everyone. My name is Joanne Lockwood, and I'm your host for the Inclusion Bites podcast. In this series, I've interviewed a number of amazing people and simply had a conversation around the subject of inclusion, belonging, and generally making the world a better place for everyone to thrive. If you'd like to join me in the future, then please do drop me a line to joe.lockwood at cchangehappen.co.uk. That's s-w-changehappen.co.uk. You can catch up with all of the previous shows on iTunes, Spotify, and the usual places. So plug in your headphones, grab a decal, and let's get going. Today is episode 36, with the title Freeing Women from Being Prisoners of Their Pain. I have the absolute honor and privilege to be joined by Diksha Chakravarti. Diksha describes herself as someone who provides integrated well-being services for women. How can they manage their stress, anxiety, and pain? When I asked Diksha to describe her superpower, she says she believes that she can achieve anything that she puts her efforts into. Hello, Diksha. Welcome to the show. Hello, Joanne. Thank you so very much for having me on your podcast. I feel it's an absolute privilege to be here. Oh, thank you for joining me. We first met probably just over a year ago online when I in and I produced the True Inclusion Conference, and you took part as one of the facilitators. So that's how we met, wasn't it? That's Amazing. correct, and it was uh, it was an eye opener, and it was made me feel very happy to be part of such an inclusive community that were present over there. So yeah, it was a wonderful event. Well done. And I can't believe it's a whole year ago. We're almost, I know. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, this has been a traumatic year. It's, <laughs> it's, it's flown past in some ways and it's dragged in other ways, you know. But I, I can't say that I would be sad to see the back of this. No, uh, for sure. So when we were talking earlier, Dick, we, we, we set the title up to be Freeing Women from the Being Prisoners of Their Pain. So tell me what that means to you. Okay, so Joanne, I'm using the word pain um, as a generic term to include uh, physical, emotional, mental, societal, spiritual pain. So that's how I view pain to be. Um, I am essentially a therapist. I have been in practice for um, 23 years. I started my life as a McTimony practitioner. And um, I have added to my skill sets, so you know, various different soft tissue uh, techniques, different types of massage, fascial release. Um, I'm also a clinical hypnotherapist and an ergonomist as well. So I added to my skill set as I went along because I qualified and provided help that my my cohort of clients needed me to. And it's when um, I decided to train in um, clinical hypnotherapy, that's, that's the time I made the decision to provide, uh, formally provide, I've been doing this informally, but pro- formally provide uh, a truly integrated approach to pain management. So my clients now come in to see me for physical pain, for anxiety and stress, and I am able to provide body work for them through mindfulness we work through calming them and relaxing them usually hypnotherapy we deal with you know long-standing ptsd and demons in the past um so 
And then when this, the coaching part of my work is actually enabling them to actually find out, dig deep within themselves and find the strength that they actually have, but haven't been able to access due to societal pressures, due to family pressures. Um, so for me, um, I see myself um, as a facilitator more than anything else because I, I don't do... Um, I don't use the word cure at all because I don't believe the cure exists. I I don't and I enable women to find their own strengths. So that actually means looking at the pain. That actually means sitting with the pain. That actually means honoring and embracing the pain. Because unless you go through this dark tunnel, Joanne, you're not going to find the light at the end of it. And granted, sometimes there's a long, dark tunnel. Trust me, I know, it's very long and dark. But there is light at the end of it. So I feel uh, that if we are able to empower and enable women to get in touch with the pains that they are experiencing, as I said, in whichever front or however many fronts they are challenged by, if we can get them to access it, to face it, to embrace it, to honor it, to work through it, then they can come out to live their true potential and their lives. Now, that I'm not saying that every woman should train as a consultant surgeon or go to become a PM of a country, not for a moment at all. Um, but what I, they will live their truth. Rather than living the truth that society forces upon them, they will live their own truths. That's what I mean by freeing women from being prisoners of their pain. So picking up on what you're saying there about societal pressures, um, I'm assuming that what you're implying there is the way women are often socialized from birth through childhood with, with limiting beliefs, expectations of being less than they can be, a, a baby machine, a wife. Um, so so how, how much responsibility do you think society has to play in this? It must be huge, isn't it? It is a, a, a big responsibility. Um, I am not, I have to say right at the outset that I have nothing against men. Um, you know, I, some of my very good friends are men as well, but there is no discounting, I don't think. There is no discounting that we live in a very patriarchal society. We live in a very hypocritical society. Um, and sadly, I also have to say that sometimes women are their own worst enemies. So in leadership roles, I have often heard uh, my clients, senior women coming in, and the biggest problems they have, the biggest uh, obstacles they have, are other women who are trying to keep them down as well. So if you look at it, women, um, unfortunately, if you look at the whole situation as it is, patriarchy has kept women suppressed for so long. Those who are coming up, they haven't got to the point, some of them, of course, they haven't got to the point where they feel safe enough where they are to actually welcome others in. So it's almost they're in a protective mode at the moment. What happens if she comes in and maybe I will have to go out? Because we are so new in this role, because women are so new in this role and this situation, I think it's, it's, it's a metamorphosis that's going to take place but hasn't yet taken place. 
yeah, I, I've heard of these kind of studies and this phrase, isn't it? The, the crabs in the bucket syndrome, where a crab tries to escape and all the other crabs pull it back down again. And there's a, an author called Margaret Hefferman, and she wrote something, The, the Super Chicken, where what happens is a, a, a woman in, in the senior leadership role will often peck at the, the, the women coming up, destroying their, their self-esteem and credibility, and, 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 and basically pull their feathers out, for want of a better way of putting it. So as you say, women are often pushing down other women because they're trying to elevate themselves, compete in that world. Absolutely. And they almost see they almost see other women as damaging their brand or damaging their credibility, don't they? Exactly, because they're not safe yet. They're not yet safe enough in the position that they are in. And that's where um, this is coming, reverting back to what I mean by pain. And fear is something, uh, Jack Canfield said, everything we want is on the other side of fear. Now, fear, for example, look at the pandemic right now. I mean... You know, the reason why we are as we are is because we are so fearful of so much that is going on. Some of that is true, of course it is, but some of that is make-believe. Some of that is generated from, from our own selves, listening to what the media has to say. So fear is something that completely disables us. It completely ruins the balance in ourselves. If we are fearful, we cannot be generous. They are contradictory. So unless... We deal with the fear, and that is, again, sitting with the pain of fear. Unless we sit with the pain of fear and work out, where is this coming from? Why am I feeling the way that I am? And the final step, what can I do about it? Unless we are able to look at our fear in a very honest way, our authentic self will not come out. And unless our authentic self comes out, we cannot be confident because we won't be living our truth. We will be living a truth that is not ours. So, of course, we're going to, we're not going to fit in there. Of course, we're not going to fit in there. I love that soundbite. I'm going to repeat it because I think it is wonderful. Everything we want is on the other side of fear. How powerful is that? Jack how often, Yeah, Jack yeah, How often does fear of change, fear of going for something, fear of grasping that opportunity, fear of being humiliated or, or rejection, how often does that stop us truly embracing what we could be? Absolutely. If we, if we could get past it. And that, that, is, that is a really insightful statement, and I, I love that. Because I look back at my own life and think all the things that held me back, and it's that we perceive it to be a thousand-foot drop but really, really, it's one inch step, isn't yes. it? And that's that's what we've got to realize is that there is no big, huge fall off. And there are people there to catch us and support us. Yes. We're never alone, are we? And that's, no. that's what we have to remember. No. And, you know, Joanne, one thing that society has always looked down upon is vulnerability. And it's only really strong, authentic people who can be vulnerable. You know, I mean... You know, how often um, I'm a member, I'm, I'm having coaching by this phenomenal company called Heart Centered uh, Business. It's run by a husband and wife team called Chris and Kareem. Um, and they run this business and they, they help therapists elevate to running practitioner businesses. Because as therapists, we are terrible. We are terrible with money, particularly. Oh my God, I can't charge that much. Oh, but I'm in pain. I'm in pain relief. Oh my God, I can't charge that much. But what they are teaching us very successfully in a heart centered way is that you can have both. 
And that comes down to money mindset. What is your money mindset? What is because you know I grew up I grew up hearing money is bad. Everybody who makes money is bad because they do it in a bad way. So money is bad, 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 bad. And so if I want to be within quotations a good person, I can't have money, but that's going to make me a bad person. So they deal with 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 all of that. And one of the things that they encourage, we are part of the forum. One of the encourage they they encourage us to be truly honest and stand up and say, you know what, guys, I'm struggling. You know what, guys? I just lost an ideal client. You know, guys, I don't know what to do about it. Now, when I started, I'm one of the older um, students on there. Most of them are half my age. Um, and I thought, oh, my God, how can I turn around and tell them that I'm struggling? I'm old enough to be their mother. What kind of what? That fear, that fear that I can't say I'm having a shit day. Help me. Asking for help is... Now, nah, it's a sign of weakness. But if you embrace our weakness, that's when we become strong. That's when we become strong. I think back to my own history, and I've, I've probably had three or four failed businesses for various reasons over the last 25 years. And at the time, you're so, you feel so much shame of admitting you're failing, so much anxiety about the unknown of what comes next, so much – it's just that internalization of that – real yeah, sense of failure. And I remember ha- hanging on to one of the businesses months longer than I should have because it fundamentally lost its ability to, to dig itself out of the hole it was in. And I went too far with it. And with one of the lessons I learned is you've got to grab these, these moments where you're anxious, you have fear, and really look on the other side of it and go, I have to, and I've got to learn, and I've learned about not burying things under the carpet, not avoiding those conversations. And But that's a life experience we all learn, isn't it? And I think yeah, without giving your age away, you're probably a few years old, older than me, and I'm in my mid-50s. So um, we learn this when we get to a certain age. We've made these mistakes. We've learned that the world doesn't stop turning. The sun still comes up in the morning, and we brush ourselves down, and things can be good again. But we, we have to do that several times in our life before we really make sense and sticks, doesn't it? This is it. And that's another one of the pains that I was talking about. So for me, that constitutes a pain. That constitutes a, a pain of identity. That constitutes a spiritual pain. But, I mean, if one is fearful, like I spoke about my money mindset, if one is fearful of letting go, what's stopping us? You know, what's stopping us? And just like you said, if we sit down and say, why why am I holding on to this business that is failing? Why am I grasping? In Buddhism, it's a term called grasping. And grasping is a reason why we suffer. Yeah, we want to hold on to something like you just so eloquently put. You're holding on to a business that has that is failing to deliver, is is past its sell-by date, and you're still holding on to it. The pain there is why. Why, Joanne, are you holding on to this? And that's the work that needs to, to, to happen. Um, on, in my life, I have a very dear friend. Uh, I love climbing mountains. I love mountains. They don't love me because every time I try and climb them, something happens. And, you know, I, I sprain my ankle or, yeah, when I tried to do uh, Kilimanjaro, the morning of the night they were going to summit, they had to stretch me down. Um, uh, not only was it, not only did I have altitude sickness, I had a UTI and bronchitis as well. So I was very sick, very very sick indeed. Uh, but I still went on. 
I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And Joanne, for a whole year, I could not forgive myself for not summiting. I could not forgive myself for not summiting. And a very dear friend of mine said to me, she said, Diksha, what is it with this? Because you always want to do big things. Why aren't small things enough? And that is because in my life, or a very large part of my life, Joanne, I felt I was a failure. I hadn't succeeded in what I had set out to do. I was a failure. And even as I speak to you right now, it makes me feel quite emotional because I tortured myself for years with thinking I'm a failure. So when one views oneself as a failure, one always tries to achieve bigger things, hoping that that's going to plug the hole. But it doesn't plug the hole. You're just looking for the next thing to say, yeah, but that was that. I'm still not satisfied. What else can I go for? You know, and for years I suffered with clinical depression because I was, um, I was walking through treacle. I was constantly walking through treacle and I kept thinking, this is going to make it okay. Yeah, I'm a course start. I do so many courses because I'm thinking if I have more letters after my name, that's going to give me credibility. I'm going to become somebody in society. I am going to be respected in society. And I'm Indian. I'm a Bengali. Uh, Bengalis tend to be incredibly bright academic people. If I look around my society right now, you know, most Bengali, um, most Bengalis, all Bengalis are professionals in one way or the other. Yeah, medics galore. You walk into any hospital, you know, you find Bengali doctors here, there. So achievement was academia. Achievement was academia. Achievement was being a surgeon, being a consultant, you know, being a, a, a lawyer, a partner in a big city firm, you know, being an accountant with a thriving practice. So that's what I grew up with. That's what expectations of me were. But when those expectations, sadly, due to circumstances, did not come to fruition, there I was. I'm a failure. I'm a failure. So I've got to achieve big things in order to make myself feel good. But guess what, Joanne? It's temporary. Mm. It's that fix, isn't it? You get that high. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Many years ago, um, I, I caught an episode of Oprah, and she was talking to this guy. I don't remember the names. I just read his name. I just remember the details. So this guy was a dentist in America, uh, a thriving dentist. and. Um, he was doing very well. So from one small house became one big house, one big house became two big house. So from one car became two cars, then became three cars, then became three expensive cars, then became a yacht, then became a, a private plane, um, exquisite jewelry for his wife. He would choose the jewelry she would wear when they went out, etc. Um, so she was the doll. She was the symbol of his wealth and achievement and position in society. And then she left him. She had had enough. She left him. That was his wake-up call. He sold everything he had. And when he came on opera, he was a prison dentist, living with prisoners, eating their food, and he said, I've never been happier in my life. There's this kind of societal expectations when we're young 
to get on this conveyor belt to success, to growth. We want to acquire assets and property and status, don't we? Uh, I I don't know, is, is, is that a patriarchal thing? Is that a female trait as well, do you think? Or is it is it societal pressure fed by, if you like, the macho success need? I think it's a macho success need, I think. Um, and I think I could be wrong. Um, there are there might be some women who particularly want that off their own off their own back, which is absolutely fantastic, not a problem. Uh, for some women it could be like my daughters challenge me all the time, Joanne. Um and my daughters actually did say to you, is it that you don't like this is because you can't have it or because you can't afford it? Is it because truly you don't want it? You know, I love, I love driving. Uh, one of my dreams is to actually take a four by four and go on safari on really rough terrain things. I love driving. So the question is, would I, if I could afford a four by four, and I guess if I wanted it badly enough, I could afford it. Would I want it? My point, my question is, yes, I would want it, but not to stand outside on my drive. I would want to take it on safari and use it in that way. So coming back to whether women want it. So some people, some women like me would want it, not because it's a status symbol. It's because they really do love it and they want it. And I guess a lot of men are like that as well. They love driving their sports cars and, you know, really enjoy it. So for enjoyment rather than a status symbol. But again, I think a large majority of women, I would say, um, have, have taken on this patriarchal cloak and so they feel as if they they need all the status symbols to be somebody um, because that's what they've grown up in. That's what they're grown I mean, you know, it's the, 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 the analogy that I said with, with being an academic. I mean, you have to be an academic to be a success. So for me, being an academic is being successful. You know, whether, whether I'm clever or not, whether I have the ability or not, if I'm not, then I'm a failure because I can't be an academic. The same thing I think. Um, the same thing I think applies to material goods as well. Yeah, I think back you know, to my life five, five years ago when I sold my business, I gender transitioned. In that moment, I kind of shed a skin, shed everything that I kind of valued. Because you know, standing on this side of fear and the other side of fear was the realization I had to let go of all of these accoutrements and trappings and, and statuses that suddenly became unimportant in my life. And actually the really important thing was finding myself. That that became worth more than everything I'd acquired over my lifetime, with the exception of my family. Obviously my family weren't sacri- wasn't sacrificing those relationships. But I went from big house, status symbols, cars, BMWs, Audis, lots of, yeah, spent lots of money and a lifestyle that was probably beyond my means most of the time to, to a much more simple life where I, I live on cash. I, I paid for my car outright off of a Facebook ad. It's a small mini convertible. It's, it's a bit clunky. It's a bit rattly. It cost me two thousand pound, and it cost me about five six hundred pound a year to keep it on the road. But I love it, and it's so simple. And I've never had so much fun driving a car as that car I've had in years. And all the BMWs that I've spent thousands and thousands on, and lost huge amounts of money on for depreciation. 
And so I really do appreciate now this simpler life. But it took me this realization that I had to let go. I had to, all those expectations, all what society told me, the, the, I'd set myself up to be this person with my friends, with my peer group to compete. And then I realized that it was a false, it was a falsehood. I didn't need it. Those, anyone who was truly my friend didn't need that from me. And once I let go, the people who stay with me in my life are the people who saw me for me, not because of what I had and the status I'd acquired. And it's listening to you speak, letting go of that, you know, being a prisoner of my own expectations, my own forcing myself into being somebody I wasn't. And then once I realized that, that was the freedom of letting that go, just dropping that shell on the floor, emerging, okay? Ah, it's amazingly empowering. And I now find that my brain is simpler. My thoughts are simpler. I don't have so much complication going on. I can see clearly now where I'm heading. And if I get lost, it doesn't matter. I just sit down, have a sandwich, get up and have a walk off somewhere else. And I don't have this destination where I must have this, I must have that, and I must have that. And yeah, listening to you speak, and that's yeah, being I was a prisoner to my needs, if you like. It's, it's not necessarily your needs, but your wants. Yeah, wants, yeah, expectations, maybe. Expectations. Yeah, and I built myself. Yeah, yes, and and that's the pain. This is another one of the pains that I'm talking about, and I and like yourself, I mean, there's been a certain. I'm still very much a work in progress, but I'm getting much better um, at just being who I am and um, not not being fearful of showing my true face to the world and um, not being frightened of making mistakes, not being embarrassed to say or do the wrong thing. Um, but the other thing is also quite true. So um, my money mindset and um, and all my years whilst I was married, um, it was always we don't have money, we don't have money, we don't have money. So my spending was very much do I need it? No, I don't, so I'm not going to buy it. So the buying for want, just to, just because I want to, just because I like it, just because I feel like it, not because someone's pressurizing me. So I have learned to do that with myself. So it's completely the flip of saying, I, I, I only buy what I need. I'm not going to buy what I want because I can't afford it, even though we could. But the pressure was, no, we can't afford it. The control was such that, no, we can't afford it. So you can't have it. Um, so now it's the, the freedom that I have got, Joanne, is to actually say, you know what, you can't afford it, buy it. You can't afford it, but and that freedom to walk in and actually buy something because I like it, it's an impulse buy, I like it, and I'm going to buy it, is great. Not that I walk in and get a Ferrari for £700,000, that's not what I'm talking about, but in my little world, I, I am free now because I spend money as I want to rather than as has been imposed upon. You see, and that to me, is the freeing on the other side for me. 
uh, I, I love that as well. Yeah, I, I've realised that now when I I want to buy something, I I don't have all the other pressures that I'm servicing. The money really is free to spend as I wish. Yeah. And if if I don't have it, I don't spend it. If I do have it, I can decide to spend it or not. Yeah. And I have more freedom of choice over how I how I purchase because I'm not servicing private schools, big house, lots of cars. Basically, yeah, maintaining the facade of life that I had for so long. And yeah, it's it's been really empowering. And I, my wife and I, we have a we we have, we've moved home recently. We have a fantastic home. We love it. So we're not we're not poor by any means, but we've readjusted our whole outlook on life and what we see as necessary, and just become simpler. And we we, we spend more time with each other's company than the big statements all the time, which is which is really powerful. I mean, I was looking at your bio, and you you grew up in Uganda, yeah, at a time where. It was a different world. I'm, I'm assuming you know, the culture, the world, and I mean, I'll let you tell the story. But you were you left Uganda in 1972, which would have been around Idi Amin's time and some of the the civil war and all the all the atrocities that went on at that point in time. So that must have been a really traumatic upbringing because you were what 15 or so at the time. It's so, do you want to tell tell us a bit, bit about? that time of your life. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Uganda is an absolutely beautiful country. Um, beautiful. It's in Bangladesh on the equator. We were right on uh, the banks of Lake Victoria. Beautiful, beautiful country. Three miles out of the township, you were into wilderness. Absolutely gorgeous. So um, when I went to Tanzania, um, to attempt climbing Kilimanjaro, my daughters asked me that, Mom, why don't you just hop across the border to Uganda? Because I was just literally a stone's throw from Uganda. I didn't because I feel if I ever go back to Uganda, I'd like to take my daughters with me so they could see where I grew up. So it was really quite a, a charmed life we led there, um, very much so. Um, unfortunately, I mean, obviously, you know, I was, I was a youngster then, but the Indians and the white people in Uganda lived charmed lives. But the indigenous people, the African Africans, were suppressed and did not have any rights whatsoever. Um, that makes me extremely sad that I was part of the population that made that happen. And one of the reasons why Idi Amin did take the action he did against the Indians, and in my view, rightfully so, is that the Indians um, had monopolized the economy of the country. Um, and to, to unfortunately, and disadvantaged the population as you know, the Africans there. Um, okay, okay, the way he went about it was it totally incorrect. But nonetheless, you could understand the sentiment as to why he did that. So it was a lovely life. I, you know, we went to school. The weather was phenomenal. During the day, we needed to have fans on because it was so hot. In the evening, we just needed a slight, very light duvet on or a blanket on. So it was a beautiful, beautiful life. And then Idi Amin in 1972 gave the Indians 90 days to leave the country. 
Now, my father was a teacher in the local school, local senior school. So as a civil servant, he was actually exempt from, from the exodus. But it became very dangerous for Indians to, to remain there because really Idi Amin has given, had given carte blanche to the, to the army. So, you know, they were raping and thieving and pillaging. So it was extraordinarily dangerous. And of course, they were targeting Indians, you know. So, so my, my uh, family decided overnight that they, I had to leave the country. Now, my father was a disabled man, so mother had to stay behind to look after him. And I was 15 at the time. My brother was uh, 15, he was 23. So literally, um, one Monday, I was told that on Saturday, I was going to fly out of the country. And I was sent to India, which is where my extended family were. Now, I had never, ever, ever been away from my family. I mean, I'd been away for a couple of nights when you go and have sleepovers with friends, but I'd never left my family to go abroad. I'd never been on an aeroplane before. And I was going to have to travel all alone across to India, where I'd only been once before. I knew the family, but, you know, they weren't family family to me. Um, the journey from home um, to the airport was very traumatic because at every kind of checkpoint, the soldiers are usually drunk um, and they were assaulting Indians um, and they were taking the jewelry, they were taking money off them, they were beating them at the side of the road. So the Indian people had to travel in convoys. Not that they that protected them, but at least they felt some security by having uh, more than just their, their, their only family there. So it was a fearful journey. Um, we were stopped at checkpoints. My brother had some cigarettes that he, you know, just, my brother was a, a people person and he spoke Swahili, the local language, fluently. Um, so as soon as we got to checkpoints, he would jump out in, in, in a very gregarious manner, say, you know, Jambawana, how are you doing to the soldiers and all of that and give them cigarettes and all. Um, and somehow we managed to get to the airport quite safely. Our convoy, our convoy wasn't assaulted or wasn't attacked in any way. And then we got to the airport um, and um, before I knew it, I was saying goodbye to my parents and then um, my brother just opened one set of double doors and shoved me inside and this was the immigration hall. So I walked into the immigration hall and I just looked around and there was nobody there other than one immigration officer who was sitting in one corner there behind uh, a kind of a glass screen and he was just swinging back and forth on his chair and when he saw me, he kind of beckoned, you know, cocked his finger and beckoned me. I had no idea what to expect. I, you know, I just went along there. I could smell alcohol and he just held his hand out and I and shouted passport. So I gave him my passport. He looked at it. He leant forward, looked at the picture, looked at me. And I was saying he smelled of alcohol. And then he said, why? He asked me, he said, uh, why are you going? And I'd been told by my family to say that my grandmother was ill. I said, my grandmother's very ill and she's asking for me. And then he said, when are you coming back? And um, again, I was, I'd been tutored to say I'll come back when she gets better. Um, and then he says, okay, when you come back, I marry you. And, um, and I just gave us kind of a little bit of what I recall now, kind of a hysterical laugh and said, yes, 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 yes of course, of course, of course. And he gave me a passport back and I turned around and I walked away. 
Um, and thankfully, there were people coming into the immigration hall then. Um, and then as we've made our way to the aeroplane, we had to walk. Because Entebbe Airport is a very small, it's like an aerodrome, really. And we had to walk. And as we walked, it was, uh, you know, the, the, these porters were sitting, these African porters were sitting there, and they were spitting at us and abusing us. And they, bought, they had bottles of the local liquor that they were kind of, you know, throwing at us, um, basically mocking us as we left the country. And again, I can understand why they were doing it. And then when I got to the bottom of the stairs, I thought I'd turn around and wave goodbye to my family. And it was dark. You know, equatorial nights are very dark. And as I turned around, John, I was so naive. As I turned around, all I saw was lights of the building, but I couldn't see my parents or my family because it was darkness. So I couldn't even say goodbye to them, you know, kind of thing. Anyway, uh, it took us a while to, to climb the steps to the plane because, you know, Indians, most of us hadn't been on an aeroplane before. When we traveled to India, as most Indians did, we traveled by steamer. We traveled by, you know, by ship. And in the ship, and traveling by ship, you have no limit on, the, on luggage, you see. Uh, you know, remember Titanic and Kate Winslet's Harmony Book? Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> we used to travel like that as well. Um, and I remember it used to be quite an expedition because mom's friends would come to the house before we traveled and they would cook up all these um, snacks, Indian snacks, uh, to take on the voyage, uh, big tins, you know, of, of, and stuff because, you know, we may not like the food on, on, on the ship and so we wouldn't starve for seven days because that's what it took from Mombasa to Mumbai. Uh, so they were used to traveling like that. So, of course, that brought in a lot of luggage and nobody told them they couldn't. So these poor stewardesses, you know, they were sweating trying to accommodate. And these Indians were holding on to their goods because, good God, they lost so much. They thought, am I going to lose this as well? They were very fearful. Anyway, uh, somehow, you know, we got on board and then I arrived in, um, I arrived in Bombay. I mean, it was early morning, still very dark, very hot. Um, didn't know what to do. I just walked down the stairs. I was just following people like sheep. And then this lovely stewardess came forward because I was an unaccompanied minor. And she called out my name and I just raised my hand as if I was in school. Um, and she took me under her wing, took me, got my immigration thing done and all of that. And then clutching my hand, she took me to this bus that was waiting outside. And she said, just wait there and other passengers will come. You'll go to a hotel and um, we'll bring you back when it's time for your connecting flight to Delhi. So I sat there, Joanne, thinking, oh, okay, other people are going to come on. And I, I can't remember how long I was there, maybe five, maybe ten minutes. And the next thing I know, the doors are shut. The driver jumps into the bus and takes off. And I'm the only passenger in the bus. And I'm sitting there, shaking away, thinking, I'm lost. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know what's happening. Anyway, then he spoke and said, you know, don't worry about it. You're, you're home now, Betty, daughter. We'll look after you. Um, you know. And then finally I went into, I took my connecting flight to Delhi to go and stay with some relatives. So that particular journey out of Uganda was frightening. So you've gone from living a privileged life yeah. as a... With, a, with parents who are quite key in society, providing you know, education services, teaching, yeah. well-respected, yeah. the Indian community holding the power in the in, in, in the country, to effectively just being ejected out the back door 
at risk of, of safety, um, even to the point where the, the person at immigration was inappropriately propositioning you as a 15-year-old, very sheltered life, dumped into another country that you'd only ever been there once. That, that must have been hugely traumatic for you. Mm, absolutely. And, yeah. and this thing about belonging, you know, like you said, your podcasts are about inclusion, belonging, and making the world a better place. I never felt I belonged anywhere. When I was in Uganda, uh, they would say, uh, my family, you know, my friends and family would say, oh, you're a Ugandan. And I didn't like that. I'm not a Ugandan. Uh, but I was born in Uganda, so technically it makes me Ugandan. Um, my family were Bengalis, and there were few Bengali families. Primarily, there were, there were a lot of Gujarati families, a lot of Punjabi families. Um, my friends were all Gujaratis, and even though we are all Hindus, they celebrate different things in different ways. Um, at home, I had one, you know, I ate one type of food, spoke one language. I stepped out that long. I no longer spoke that language. I had to speak various different languages. I mean, it served me well. I speak Hindi, I speak Gujarati, I speak Punjabi. Um, uh, so it, it, it stood me good in that state. But I remember that when the rest of India celebrates Diwali, Bengalis don't celebrate Diwali in quite that way. So I didn't belong. I constantly felt I didn't belong. And then when I went to India, I was this hybrid. You know, I was a Bengali child born of Bengali parents who lived in Africa for 15 years of her life. As my father had a very strict rule. We had to speak Bengali at home. But of course, my accent was very foreign, very foreign. Um, and the food was very different. The food was extremely different in India. So, and you know, I had to get used to their ways. Again, I didn't feel I belonged. I went to a school where... I didn't understand anything. They did what they call modern maths. I'd only done traditional maths. Um, for someone who's, you know, who's always been used to topping the class, when I sat the first test, I came up third from the bottom. And I thought, at least I wasn't right at the bottom. There are two people who are below me. Yeah. Um, and the girls in the school, I was bullied. I was bullied in the school because I was a foreigner. I was a stranger. I didn't speak the language very well. I was ragged. I was bullied. Um, my family, though, were absolutely fabulous. My aunt, my mother's sister, was like my surrogate mom. They, they could not have done more to make me feel welcome. I always got the largest piece of fish. I always got the largest piece of meat. There was always something special for me before anybody else got it. So, gosh, they really went out of the way. But I didn't feel I belonged. I just didn't feel I belonged. And then my parents joined me about a year after I'd gone. My father was then a disabled, well, he was a disabled man here. His health was failing. We spent two years when I was 17. And in 1974, my brother would come to the UK when we had gone to India, had by then um, set up home, had got married, got himself a job in the civil service. And he said, right, come on over and we'll be a family again. So... In 1974, yet again, nobody asked me if I wanted to go. I was in my final year, you know, up from India to the UK. Um, very strange experience. Very strange experience. Um, I just contributed a chapter to an anthology called The New Woman, 
And it's it's chapters that are written by women who have had difficulty that they've come out of. And I've written this particular bit in that in there because I, I just the sense of belonging. I've always always been on the outside, um, and we arrived here struggled a lot with lots of cultural things. Uh, within a month of coming here, my father unfortunately passed away and that was stress that killed him. Uh, the stress of the exodus, the fact that he was a, 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 a sick man anyway, it killed him. Um, and things basically fell apart. Um, I went to university. I was having problems at home as well because you know, outside I was being told, have you got a boyfriend? I was 17. Have you got a boyfriend? And Indian girls at the age of 17 don't have boyfriends. And whilst I, I didn't have the courage, Joanne to and I said, no, I'm from India. We don't have boyfriends. I would, I would just kind of skulk away. And at home, I wanted to know why I couldn't have a boyfriend. And of course, that caused issues. That caused big issues there. Um, and then, you know, things fell apart in a big way for me. So I then, um, I then um, got married. And I got married completely on impulse. Um, he was a very good man, but we were not suitable to each other. And guess what? When I arrived at my in-laws, yet again, I didn't fit in and didn't belong. So the UK must have been a tricky time, 1972. So the Race Relations Act came in in 1976. So there was a lot of racial tension about then. There was Enoch Powell, Rivers of Blood, that must have been around that time. It was the tail end of the Windrush generation. Yes. Lots of racism going on in communities, isn't there? Lots of people who've, who've been brought into the country to rebuild Britain after the, after the war were now being seen as the, the evil job takers and there's a lot of racism on that. So you, you came here as an outsider from an outsider from an outsider into another country where – you were, again, an outsider, and there was no belonging again, I, I'm, I'm assuming. Not at all. My brother, when he first came here, he came with the the influx of Indians directly from Uganda. So they were housed in barracks. Um, he was housed in Kensington Barracks. And uh, a group of, 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 of friends would go out in the evening, and regularly they were beaten up by skinheads. Regularly they were beaten up by skinheads. So it was a very difficult time. I remember I was uh, walking uh, one day and these two women were talking across fences, you know, as, as they did. And I overheard one of them say that, oh, these people, <clears throat> they need to have a bath every day. They waste so much water. Where do they think all this water is coming? Why the hell don't they go back to where they came from, you know? And as I passed, I got the dirtiest of looks from them because we were not welcome. We were not welcome. So do you think at the time, as a young woman, you suffered less racism than the young men? Or do you think it was fairly even? You see, confession time, Joanne. My daughters often say to me, Ma, if racism hit you in the face, you wouldn't recognize it. I've never had that antenna up. When I reflect back, I now see where it was, where it was. Now, I, my mother's faced racism as an older Indian woman, the, the greengrocer who tried palmer off, 
uh, rotten uh, bananas as it was giving the fresh ones she was asking for. I've heard stories of, of um, Indian women suffering racism. I, I'm not sure whether women suffered less or whether they spoke about it less, whether it was brought to their attention less. Um, so I can't answer that question with any kind of confidence because I have no evidence to support it. But you were kind of in your own little bubble where you didn't really experience it or you weren't conscious of it. I wasn't, wasn't conscious. In your front, yeah. I wasn't conscious. And again, I would say it was not... It, it was. Not a lack of consciousness that was healthy. It was an unhealthy uh, lack of consciousness. Um, and let me explain. So, sadly, I grew up in a very violent household. Um, it wasn't towards me. It was towards my brother. My father was very violent towards my brother. So I grew up uh, in a very violent uh, household. And with all the traumas that have happened in my life, I've just, I've just continued to shut down shut down, shut down, totally disconnect. So when you spend your life disconnected, you are not aware of what is going on. You live in your head all the time. I'm, I'm a reader. I love reading. That was my paradise. I could lose myself in books. So that was my haven. So the fact that I was unaware is because I was disconnected and therefore not aware. So it wasn't a healthy way of, healthy reason for not being aware. It was simply that, I just didn't have the wherewithal. I just do not have the awareness to be aware of what was going on around me. I noticed when we were talking earlier, you said that you've had a fair share of traumas over your life, which you've just uh, really shared with, with, with me, and it's been really powerful to listen to. But you've you've become resilient because of that, haven't you? You've it's made you a stronger person. It's allowed you to, in fact, embrace what you do now and use your strength and resilience to help others who maybe haven't found that in themselves yet. That's how I have, that's how I use it. But it's been one hell of a wearing journey. It's been one hell of a wearing journey. Um, my spirituality has stood by me. Um, I always know there's a reason for going through whatever we go through. Um, and, um, you know, believe in karma. Um, and, I, I don't stay down for too long. I have learned not to stay down for too long. And that's when I said my, my super strength is I go down. I go down. And uh, for many, many years, I was a glass half empty. Uh, and again, I understand why I was glass half empty. So I'm still in, as I said, I'm still work in progress. I'm still working on becoming glass half full at the moment, um, but it has been extraordinarily tiring. And one of the things I didn't ever have growing up was support of any sort, no awareness and no support of any sort. So my mission in life is absolutely to support women who need it and actually to turn them around. It's like Plato's grave, cave, turn them around and say, there's so much available out there. You've got, you don't have to do this alone. You don't have to do this alone. You can become free, but reach out. Reach, it's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to be weak. It's okay to say I'm feeling shit. It's okay to say I'm not superwoman. Do not try and be superwoman. Take time out. Let's help. Connect with yourself. Look for help around. And that's why I'm so passionate about providing an integrated service rather than Go and see this person for this and this person for this and this person for this and you're making all those journeys. You're, 
you know, you're building, trying to build rapport with different people. It's, it's, it's shambolic. Join is shambolic. When you build rapport and trust, right? When you build rapport and trust, that's what the, the, the therapeutic value of having a trusting relationship cannot be overemphasized. No, you, you, yeah, you're right. I think trust is fundamental. And, and when we think about when we're in a toxic relationship in our family or even a toxic relationship in our work, the trust is broken down. We, we're basically going through the motions, fearing for the next step. Not we're, we're paralyzed by our circumstance often, aren't we? We don't know how to break out of that because, it's, again, it's that everything we want is on the other side of fear. What we know, what we've been socialized into, we almost feel that sort of Stockholm Syndrome safeness about it, don't we? Yes, absolutely. And it's... The other side is is, is going to be better, but there's so much fear to get to the other side. We we, we never break loose. No, we. And that's don't. why you know many women, many people stay where they are because they don't have that at the tools or the resilience to, to break through that fear barrier. Absolutely, my younger daughter, who's had an incredibly challenging life, incredibly challenging life. Um, uh, maybe you should have her on a podcast. She's. Um, she gave a presentation uh, about five years ago and she spoke about abusive, toxic relationships. That's what you mentioned and how she managed at last to extricate herself from one of those. And there was a woman in the, uh, in the audience who heard her um, and she actually went back home and took action. She got out of her toxic relationship just simply hearing my daughter stand up and deliver that presentation and say, you too can do it. You too can do it, yes. Powerful words, aren't they? You can do it. Everything you want is on the other side of fear. You've just got to open that door, haven't you? Yeah. And you're not alone. That's you're the key thing to alone. remember, isn't it? And finally, I would say, and this is my very favourite saying from Dr. Wayne Dyer is, please don't die with the music still in you. Oh, that's beautiful. I mean, it's sad, but it's beautiful, isn't it? It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's almost equivalent to don't die with money in the bank, isn't it? Sort of <laughs> yes. You've earned it. Enjoy it. Enjoy it. it. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's my, that's my passion in life. I want to say to as many sisters as I can, let's, you can do it. Let's do it together. Let's do it together. Um, we'll support you. Powerful. Very powerful. Thank you. Amazing. What a, what a conversation, and we should keep going, I'm sure. Um, tell us a bit more about how people get in contact with you. Okay, thanks. So uh, my, my company is called Fix Me, um, F-I-X-M-E. My website is www.fixme.org.uk, um, and my telephone number is 07878 my email is diksha at fixme.org.uk and people can connect with me on LinkedIn under Diksha Chakravarti. So you welcome uh, someone to just drop you a line, Please. have a quick Zoom chat, see how Please. you can help? Absolutely. With respect to, I offer a, a complimentary discovery call. Um, and if they just email me or pick up the phone and talk to me, I'm here. Please, if there's anybody that's listening and feels they might like a conversation. Please don't hesitate. Honestly, just pick up the phone and talk. I'd love to hear from them.
Um, I can certainly say that, you know, we, we spoke a lot last year for the event and we had a great chat about half an hour before we started the podcast. And you're such a, a, a great listener. I could feel you unlocking things with the questions and the just that gentleness of, about looking into who I am. And, yeah, I, I felt like I, I was quite willing to pour my own heart out to you at the beginning. There. Was, so you're very easy to talk to, very easy to and I feel that empathy and compassion from you just by and, and the huge smile you've got as well, which oh. you can't tell from the podcast. <sighs> so thank you so much. It's been an hour. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed spending talking to you, listening to you, and moved by that that story about your your early life and and some sadness that you you took you a long time in your life to find that sense of belonging, which now you found your passion and purpose. You've got it again, haven't you? You feel like you're right in the middle, and this is it. I, I don't think, I, John. I, I will not. I cannot imagine myself doing anything else. If if I if I could afford to, I can honestly say that's all I would do. I would work with women in refuges in in uh, centres like that, where I can I can just be there for them. You know, sometimes it's just. It's just being there for someone. It's just giving them the hug and saying, you know what? I understand. Come, you know, just have a hug. That's, you know, this is it. So this is my life's mission. And that's why I like, you know, opportunities for uh, public speaking, holding workshops on stress management. I'm a stress management trainer, holding workshops for that. But my focus is helping women become free from being prisoners to pain. What a pain that is. Even if I can't solve it, I'll find somebody who can. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So if you've been listening, thank you so much for getting to the end, for tuning in. Please do subscribe and keep updated with future episodes of the Inclusion Bites podcast. That's B-I-T-E-S. Please do tell your friends and colleagues, share the links. I have a number of other exciting guests lined up over the next few weeks and months that I'm sure you'll be inspired with. Even more so, who knows? So please, 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 please do subscribe. If you'd like to be a guest, if you've got a story, if you've got a passion you'd like to share, then please do let me know. And of course, I'd welcome any feedbacks or suggestions you may have to joe.lockwood at cchangehappen.co.uk. I'm always looking for ways I can improve the show. So finally, my name is Joanne Lockwood. It's been an absolute pleasure to host this podcast for you today. Catch you next time. Bye.